Uh, Let's open up our Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 2. And as you're finding your way to your Bible pass, I want to introduce a couple guest pastors. Here we have this morning, first of all, Pastor Rolf Krede from Calvary Chapel Lippstadt in Germany. Stand up, Rolf. Regina also, his wife. Rolf and Regina. And then also Pastor Kurt Ibbotson from Calvary Chapel Leipzig, Germany. Kurt's been serving in Leipzig for many years, but he and his family, they're uh, really being led of the Lord to go now to Sweden and to start a Calvary Chapel there. And so we're really uh, praying for them, and we're happy to get behind that as a church. So in any regard, John chapter 2, today we're going to be taking a look at verses 13 through 25, and I thought that I'd read the entire text this morning as we get into it. So why don't we stand together and give reverence to God's word as I read this morning's text, John chapter 2 starting now at verse 13. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple, with the sheep and the oxen, and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple. And you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said to them, and they believed the scripture and the words which Jesus had said. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men And had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Father in heaven, we pray now that you would bless your word to our hearts. Actually, Lord, perhaps what I should pray is that you would bless our hearts to your word. It's your word that's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. But Lord, it's often the heart of man that is dull, that is blunt, Uh, that needs life from you to respond to you. So, Lord, would you please touch our hearts and make us alive to your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Last week we saw in the first half of John chapter 2 that Jesus went to a wedding in a city called Cana of Galilee. He was up in this northern area of the place of the general region of Israel, And he did this stupendous miracle where he added joy to the presence of the wedding. He didn't teach a Bible study. He didn't even give a prayer that we know of. He just simply made the water into wine and increased the presence of joy and goodness there at that wedding. Now, in the second half of John chapter 2, the scene shifts in its geography. No longer are we up near the Sea of Galilee... Now we are down south in the region of Judea, most notably Jerusalem. 
Jesus is here in Jerusalem, and he's there for the Passover feast. Take a look now at verse 13, where we read. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers doing business. Now, I don't want you to get confused here. Jesus is up with many thousands of pilgrims. Some people estimate that there was as many as 250,000 visitors that came to Jerusalem around Passover time. They would crowd the city, and especially they would crowd the Temple Mount. They were there because they came to offer sacrifices at Passover season. They were there because they came to offer the special temple tax, which had to be paid in a special temple currency. And so that's why they had to have the money changers there. And so you had people providing sacrificial animals. You had people providing money changing services. And they were all right up there on the temple mount. Not in the temple building itself. The temple building itself was a fairly small building as far as temples go. But the temple mount area was, and is to this day, quite large. And in these spacious outer courts of the temple, you had all these stalls, all these booths, all these areas for money changing and animal selling going on. It looks something like a flea market. There's people bargaining over the prices of animals. There's people uh, exclaiming about the, uh, the uh, rates for the money changing on that particular day. It's a real place of business and commerce. And it wasn't the first time that Jesus saw this. I mean, Jesus had been coming to Jerusalem for many years. This is a faithful Jewish man. But now he came there having started his work formally as the Messiah. And friends, something changed. Jesus came up on the Temple Mount and he saw all the activity going on. It says there, right there in verse 14, the money changers doing business, the animals being sold. He saw it operating much like a flea market instead of the house of God. Everybody else thought it was okay. Everybody else thought, well, that's just what it is like at the temple. Yeah, yeah, that's just what it's like. You have to go and worship God within the background, people shouting out exchange rates. With people haggling over the sale of animals. Let me tell you, in those cultures, they know how to haggle. And sometimes it can be very energetic. And so you have all this marketplace scene right there. And it's supposed to intrude upon the temple things. And everybody else thought it was normal, except Jesus. Jesus looked around and he said, this isn't right. This isn't how it's supposed to be in the house of God. Oh, oh, there's, there's a place for selling animals. There's a place for exchanging money. Jesus wasn't, if you want to use it today, he wasn't anti-business. But he said, this is the house of God. And this is a different place altogether. So what did he do? Envision this in your mind as we read, starting at verse 15. Verse 15 says this. And when he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the temples. And he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. That's pretty awesome, isn't it? First of all, notice, Jesus didn't do this just because he lost his temper. No, a man who loses his temper doesn't make a whip of cords very carefully. I don't know if there were little strands of rope. Some people think it was little strands of flax that they was used for bedding for the animals. I don't know exactly, no. But he takes some kind of strands of cord or fabric or something like that, and he 
starts tying knots in them. He starts arranging them in an accord. And he says, I'm going to get to business with this little hastily constructed whip. And what does he do? He goes over to some of the animals and he starts whipping them on the back. He says, get out of here. He goes over to the money changer's temple, and he see, or his table, I should say, and he goes over and he turns it all over and says, get out of here. He goes over to the people selling doves, and he goes, take your doves and beat it. This isn't the place or the marketplace. This is the house of God, and don't make it a place of merchandise. Again, I want to draw the contrast. Everybody else thought it was normal. The high priest saw that scene every day. He said, yeah, whatever, man. The, the other priest said, well, this is just how you do it. They got to do this somewhere. Why not do it here? All the visitors, they came, well, this is just how it is. Jesus looked at things that everybody else said, this is just how it is. And he said, no, it needs to be different. And he turned the tables and drove out the animals. Isn't that a wonderful scene? So he drove them out. It says there in verse 15, he made the whip of cords. He drove out the animals. And then it goes on, it says that he poured out the changer's money and overturned the temple. And I think this is really a wonderful thing and deliberately arranged by John the Evangelist who wrote this gospel. And this is how he deliberately arranged it. What is it in the first half of John chapter 2? What we have is a miracle of conversion. Water changed into wine. That's a miracle of conversion. Now what do you have in the second half of John chapter 2? You don't have a miracle of conversion. You have a work of cleansing. And it's as if John wants us to understand this is how Jesus works amongst his people. First he does a miracle of conversion. Then he does a work of cleansing. And the two go together. You have the water changed into wine. And then you have the whip of cords driving the merchandise out of the house of God. You have conversion, then you have cleansing. Friends, I've kind of observed, I've observed this in my own life and the lives of many other people, especially through my years of pastoral work, that there are people who have a difficult time with both aspects of Jesus' work. It it seems like people are prone to one side or the other. If I could use these terms, and I hope this doesn't sound strange to anybody, but if I could use these terms, people either want the wine or the whip. They want the wine of the wedding at Cana. Woo, Jesus is just here to bring us joy, and isn't it great? It's spring break, Jesus. Bring on the wine. Now listen, friends, I absolutely believe that the work of Jesus Christ in your life and my life is to bring us joy. It's to give us peace. It's to do his wonderful work of just coming and doing good things in our life. Jesus says, I have come that I can give you life and give you it more abundantly. I believe, so to speak, in the wine at the wedding of Cana. But that's not the whole story. Jesus also holds the whip. And Jesus says, if you're my child, if I've done my work of conversion in you, I have the right to drive out of your life things that displease me. He's got the wine and the whip. And isn't it funny that some people have a very one-dimensional Jesus. They kind of can't handle it that he has both offices. Some people only want the Jesus of the whip. It's all legalism. It's all this. It's all harsh. It's all, are you walking pure enough? Again and again and again. He says, where's the joy in the Christian life? Then there's other people who want it to be all the wine all the time. And they never seem to take seriously the call to holiness that Jesus puts on each life. Friends, don't have a one-dimensional Jesus. 
It's both the wine and the whip. He's bigger than your one dimension. Don't make Jesus small. No, let him be as big and as, if I could use this word, as textured as he is in the scriptures. He's not just one dimensional. But then we've got to ask ourselves a question. When Jesus wants to do a cleansing work in your life or in mine, why? I'll tell you the reason most people think in this world, in this culture, and how many of us think kind of instinctively. Probably nobody told you this, but maybe it's just hidden away in your mind. Why does Jesus want to do a cleansing work in your life? Because he looks around and sees if anybody's having fun and he wants to stop them from having fun. Isn't that the attitude that this world has? Friends, nothing can be further from the truth. Let me illustrate this by the analogy of Jesus coming up to the temple and seeing all the commerce, seeing it being turned into a flea market right up there on the temple grounds. Why did Jesus cleanse the temple? Why? Well, first of all, he cleansed it because he said, this is my house. This belongs to me. And if Jesus Christ looks over your life and he says, your life belongs to me, doesn't he have the right to cleanse it? Don't you have the right to clean your own house? And if it belongs to Jesus, he has the right to clean your house. That's number one. Number two, Jesus has a way of looking at things and seeing where things need to be fixed up, where nobody else ever saw a problem. As I said before, everybody else just accepted this as normal. The high priest said it was normal. All the Levites and the priests who did their work, and they well, yeah, this is how you do it on the Temple Mount. Jesus came up and he said, no, everybody else thinks this is okay. I don't think this is okay. Let's do a cleansing work. Friends, I just want you to understand something. And I need to speak this to myself as well. But friends, it's possible for us to think that everything is okay in our life and Jesus to look at our life and say, this needs to be cleaned up. Do not assure yourself just because your own conscience thinks it's okay. Sometimes our consciences can be a little bit warped or twisted. It's possible. You know, sometimes you have this phenomenon, and I'll just use this illustration. Let's just say of a teenage boy. Teenage boy, 15, 16 years of age. And sometimes, I'm not meaning this as any kind of slander against teenage boys in general, but it's just true sometimes that their rooms can be a mess. And, And sometimes a severe mess. I mean, clothes everywhere, filthy clothes, pizza boxes, trash that needs to be carried out. There's a mess, there's a disorder, there's a chaos. And sometimes, sometimes there's a smell that is hard to define. It's just 15, 16-year-old boy smell that just fills the room. Now, isn't it true that sometimes if you try to call that 15, 16-year-old boy on it, he'll think everything's perfectly normal. Well, what? What's the problem? I don't see what the problem is. I mean, it's, it doesn't bother me, he'll say. But you, as the parent, you know it's not right. Something needs to be cleansed. Friends, don't you see that by analogy, that's how it is sometimes in our life before Jesus? You think it's okay, but Jesus says it needs to be cleansed. You see, this touches our life when it comes down to just about everything. When it comes down to sexual morality. When it comes down to sexual morality, the world may say, hey, this is okay for you to act this way or that way. I want to know what does Jesus say to your life? But when it comes to addictions in your life, you know, the world has a whole different category about that, but Jesus may have a different category. When it comes to what constitutes theft in your life, the world may say, well, doesn't matter. Download as much as you want. Jesus might have a different opinion. On and on I could go, but you get the point. 
Now, when I say this to you, I recognize there's sort of a danger here. And here's the danger. It's to make you kind of paranoid before God. Oh, I said hello to somebody. How do I know I did that out of a pure heart? Jesus, was that a pure heart or no? And I've met people like this. And, and it's strange and it's sad to see that at work in a life. And we can have an element of it without being fully given over to it. Look, friends, this is how I know that I process it for myself. I keep the prayer from the Psalms in my mind very strong. It's just simply this. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. Jesus, I recognize I might be blind to something that needs to be cleaned up in my life, but would you please show me if I am? I need to see it, Jesus. I want to see it. And I guess I'm just saying, would you please make that your prayer in your life? That you would say to Jesus, Jesus, I understand, I might be completely at peace with something in my life that you want to clean up. If that's the case, Jesus, would you please show me? I don't want to be paranoid. I don't want to go into some weird, excessive introspection, you know, overanalyzing every mode of everything. That's a weird way to live, and I don't think it's very godly. But God forbid, if we give up on that central call that Jesus gives us to be holy before him. He has the right to clean his own temple. And one reason why, look at verse 17. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. Jesus is zealous that his house be holy. Now, you know what's interesting about that? The idea that we are the temple of God is used in two senses in the New Testament. It's used in the first sense like this. That you individually, as a son or a daughter of God, you are the temple of God. So he's concerned about your individual holiness. Because you're the temple of God. And if, he's, if you are the temple of God, doesn't he have the right to inspect the cleanliness of his own temple? And here's the second aspect. The idea of us being the temple of God is used in a secondary sense. And that is, we are the temple of God collectively. Together as a congregation. And God is concerned that we be concerned about his holiness together as a congregation. And friends, this is just what we want God to do in our midst. You know, one of the reasons why every Sunday we have a prayer team and invite people to come forward and invite them to pray is I'll just say it honestly. If there's things in your life that need to be made right with God, we pray that you take that opportunity and do it. We pray that you take the opportunity to confess and repent. Because we want to be before God a congregation that is concerned rightly for his holiness. That says to Jesus, Jesus, you have the right to do house cleaning in our midst. We are your temple, both individually and collectively. And we want your zeal to have a clean house to be manifested in our midst. Anyway, continuing on now to verse 18, we read this. So the Jews answered and said to him, what sign do you show us since you do these things? I think it's kind of an interesting question. I wonder if Jesus could not have replied, what do you mean what sign? I I just showed you a sign. I drove out all the money changers and the merchants from the temple. That's my sign. My sign is that I have a concern for the holiness of God's house when apparently none of you guys do. But Jesus didn't say that. 
He didn't say, just look at the sign that I've already did. No, he gave them another sign, an interesting sign, that I don't know if they could have understood it at the time, but surely it was understood later. Verse 19, Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered and he had said this to them. And they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Oh, isn't that powerful in verse 19? Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now, according to verse 21, Jesus spoke of the temple of his body. Jesus was not, by the way, At his trial before Pilate, he was accused of this, but it was a lying accusation. Jesus was not advocating the destruction of the building of the temple. No, 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 not as a physical building. As a matter of fact, I'm sure, I I can't prove it, but I just have this inclination to think that when Jesus said, destroy this temple, he, he gestured to himself. Destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up again. And Jesus was saying something pretty profound there. He was admitting that it would be the work of those very religious leaders that would lead to the destruction, at least temporarily, of his own temple of his own body. They would have their part in putting him up on the cross. And so he said, go ahead, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And he did, didn't he? You and I read that and we go, well, he's speaking of his resurrection, of course. When he says in verse 19, I will raise it up. Jesus speaks of his own resurrection and how he will raise himself from the dead. By the way, can I just ask you a question? How do you do that? How do you raise yourself from the dead? Isn't that a fascinating thing that Jesus said that? Have you ever thought about that question? Who raised Jesus from the dead? I understand this may not interest very many people in here, but it interests me. So I'm going to talk about it. The Bible gives us the sense that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were all at work in the resurrection of Jesus. Here, plainly, Jesus said, I'll raise myself from the dead. I will raise it, he said. But then we also know, not only that God the Son said that he would raise himself, but God the Father, in Romans chapter 10, uh, excuse me, Romans chapter 6, verse 4, and Galatians chapter 1, verse 1, the Father said that he would raise the Son from the dead, And then we also find in Romans chapter 1, verse 4, and in Romans chapter 8, verse 11, that the Holy Spirit is said to have raised Jesus from the dead. So which is it? Was it God the Son, God the Father, or God the Holy Spirit? And the answer is yes. It was the work of the triune God to raise Jesus from the dead. But isn't that a bold claim to deity? Friends, only God could say of himself, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. I will raise myself from the dead. And that's exactly what Jesus said. So much so that verse 22 tells us that his disciples remembered that he had said this to them and they believed the scripture. That they only believed this after the death and resurrection of Jesus. But at least at that final point, they believed what Jesus said and they realized he said it all along that he would raise himself from the dead. Now going on now to verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. Stop right there. Just read verse 23. Many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. Now, they said, well, praise the Lord. 
Many believed in his name. That's a good thing, isn't it? Isn't it a good thing for people to believe in his name? And when did they, why did they believe? Because they saw the signs which he did. They saw Jesus do something of the miraculous in their midst, and they said, I'm going to believe in his name. Now, if you didn't read any further, make eye contact with me. Now, don't look down at your Bible right now. No further. Without reading any further, would you say that's a good thing or a bad thing? That they believe, good! What could possibly be wrong with that? Well, notice verses 24 and 25 now. Let's take a look. It says, but Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Jesus was not satisfied with the faith that came only from an expression of the miraculous. That wasn't enough for Jesus. Matter of fact, it's interesting. It says that the people believed in him, and obviously they did in some sense. But it says Jesus did not commit himself to them. Isn't that fascinating? You know, we talk about a person committing their life to Jesus Christ, and that's a valid way to speak. I pray that everybody in this room has committed their life to Jesus Christ. But maybe we should ask another question. Has he committed himself to you? Because the real work of God in our life doesn't happen because we commit ourselves to him. It happens because he commits himself to us. And there is apparently an aspect of faith that is weak, that is low. And Jesus says, that's not enough. I'm not going to commit myself to them on the basis of that faith. It needs to be more. I guess what I'm saying is, you can be impressed by Jesus, yet not fully trust in him the way that you should. You can say, wow, look at what Jesus can do. Yet you don't yield your life to him in the way that you should and fully trust in him. I think this is a very important point for our day and age because a lot of people talk today about believing in Jesus. Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe in Jesus? You know, there's lots of people who believe in Jesus, but what do they mean when they believe in Jesus? Well, I believe that he existed. Well, I believe that he taught some good things. I believe that he walked this earth. Maybe even I believe he died on the cross and he rose from the dead. Oh, but friends, do you put your trust in him? The New Testament idea of belief, of faith, it's not just to believe that someone or something exists, but it's to trust in, rely on, and to cling to. And that's the question. I'm not asking if you believe Jesus existed, That's the kind of faith that Jesus will not commit himself to. But do you trust in him? Do you rely on him? Do you cling to him? That's the faith that Jesus is looking for. I can imagine there might be someone here listening to me this morning and they say, well, David, to be honest, I have the first kind of faith. I believe Jesus was and I even have a sense of admiration for him. But trust him, rely on him, cling to him? No, I'm not there yet. Well, first of all, I'm glad you've at least come up to that first place of faith. That's not bad. I'd rather you believe that he existed than he didn't. I'm just trying to tell you that first step of faith is not enough. And Jesus knows if you've only made that first step of faith. Notice it. I'll read it again. Verse 24, but Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men And he had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. 
I like what G. Campbell Morgan said about this. He's a great Bible commentator of about 100 years ago, and he said this. If belief is nothing more than admiration for the spectacular, it will create in multitudes applause, but the Son of God cannot commit himself to that kind of faith. If that's your kind of faith, great starting point. I'm glad you have it. But would you bring it through to the place where you really trust in him, rely on him, and cling to him? Where you look at the place where you look to what Jesus did on the cross and you say, I want that to be my right standing before God. Not myself, not my church attendance, not my good works, not any of that, but in what Jesus Christ did for me on the cross, that's the ground of my righteousness. I'm going to trust in him, not myself. I'm going to rely on him, not myself. I'm going to cling to him, not myself. Now, if you're not there I'll just remind you, Jesus knows. Uh, Let me read it to you again. He knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. I don't mean to creep anybody out, but Jesus knows you. He knows you. He knows you through and through. He knows the part of you that you may even hide to your spouse. He knows you. And here's the thing that's even more amazing about this. He knows you for exactly who you are. And he loves you. If if the hidden you is bound up in sin and compromise, he loves you and wants to set you free from it. If the hidden you is filled with fear and doubt, he loves you and wants to set you free from it. Isn't it amazing to think that somebody could really know you? Every secret of your life and still love you. Have you ever had the experience where just by accident, I hope it's by accident, maybe it's not, maybe it's deliberate. You catch somebody staring at you. Makes you feel very uncomfortable, doesn't it? When you think about it logically, why should it bother us if anybody stares at us? No, there's something deep within us that says, don't you look too carefully at me. That's out of bounds. God doesn't have to stare at you to know what's in you. Every secret, every hidden thing, and I want you to be persuaded of it. He still loves you. Maybe there's some cleansing that needs to happen. I don't know. I'll have to let him speak to your life about it. Maybe there's a few money changers uh, tables to be turned over. Maybe there's some commerce that needs, whatever it is. But you get the picture. But nevertheless, he knows you through and through and he loves you. So can you commit yourself to that prayer? I'll just say it again and then I'll pray it all for us. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. That means test me and know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Father, that's our prayer before you this morning. Lord, I pray and I, Lord, I, I genuinely plead before you. I, I pray that the truth of this message is not twisted in anybody's heart 
to put them into a morbid self-introspection. Lord, that, that would be a work of the evil one. But Lord, in the appropriate way, would you speak to us about anything in our life that needs your cleansing touch? We so admire you, Jesus, how you could look at something that everybody else thought was normal and you could say, let's do some cleansing here. So Lord, would you do it in our life? We open ourselves up to you, Jesus. And we say, Lord, bring us to the place where we genuinely trust in, rely on, and cling to you. You are a great God and thank you for loving us so much even though you see us so perfectly. We pray this, Lord, together in Jesus' name. Amen.